Hello, and welcome to Journey With Us, a podcast of Journey Baptist Church. Hello, and welcome to another episode of Meet Our Members, a podcast of Journey Baptist Church. I am Adam, and today I will be interviewing Pastor Calvin Haynes, who has been with us 13 years. Is that right? It's three months longer than Jacob, which is really the only number that matters. Has Jacob surpassed me in every way? Technically, yes. Have I been here longer than him, though? Technically, yes. Starting off strong. <laughs> All right. I just want to put my biggest strengths forward, that's, and that is that I've marginally been here longer than him. That's good. This this podcast should embody who you are, so Thank I'm you. glad we're starting off um, on, on a strong note, like you said. Yes. Um, well, Calvin... These interviews are really uh, to get to know you so that our church members can not just know you, again, as the pastor and your teaching abilities, but to get to know you as a person. And so we're going to walk through your testimony. We're going to walk through your call to ministry. We're going to walk through your service to the church. And so let's start with that first one. Let's start with testimony. Um, What can you tell me about your upbringing? Where did you grow up? What kind of household structure was it in? And along the way, uh, what age did you come to Christ? So I grew up in a, a divorced household, but both my parents loved me and they were amicable toward each other. So I didn't have a lot of the, the problems that children of divorce had. I was an only child as well. So it was truly just me and then my dad or me and my mom. Um, And my mom and dad had very different theological beliefs. My dad was a Southern Baptist and my mom was a, uh, I'd probably use the term hyper-charismatic. You know, and so growing up, I went to a diversity of different churches. At one point, my dad took me to a vineyard church. At one point, we went to non-denominational churches. For some season, we didn't go to church, whereas with my mom, we went to um, what would be considered kind of the seed church for the International House of Prayer, IHOP. And so a lot of the, what would be called the Kansas City Prophets, I knew on a personal basis, like Mike Bickle has been to my mom's house many times. I've eaten dinner with him, you know, and so uh, a lot of these people I've known. So I grew up with two very different types of Christianity. it would have been when I was around six years old that I believe there was like a, maybe an in-home Bible study and I heard someone talking about hell and that prospect really scared me, which it, it does every child, obviously. Uh, and so I talked to my dad about that and we prayed to receive Jesus. And now, now knowing what I know, oh, is that a genuine conversion? Ugh, I think like if that was my experience as a 36-year-old, I would be much more worried about that. But uh, one thing a phrase Shelley Black told me one time is that, you know, a six-year-old gives a six-year-old hearts to Jesus, you know, as opposed to a 20-year-old that gives a 20-year-old's heart to Jesus. So I feel pretty confident that that was about as genuine as I could be as a six-year-old. But I have no memory in my life of ever not believing in Jesus, of ever not trusting in Jesus, of ever not being a Christian. And so if I had to pick a starting point, that's probably the point I would pick. How did you navigate the confusion of those two very different 
theologies and, and flavors of Christianity, not only as a six-year-old, uh, but just throughout middle school, high school, throughout your upbringing? Um, how, how did you navigate that confusion? Initially, before I was a theologian, quote-unquote, it was more just my personal experience of, you know, how am I feeling around this? And then what am I observing with my senses of, you know, what am I seeing? What am I experiencing? What am I hearing? And so I definitely just knew where I felt more comfortable as a child. Um, But I mean, that's not what I would base a systematic theology on. I I will share one story just because I do feel like, you know, people often want to know like like what was that like mm-hmm. and so there was a, a camp that I went to one time called Camp Dry Gulch um, and you know for the most part it was like any other kids camp but instead of kind of like a, a salvation night the camp instead had like a, a speaking in tongues night and it's, it's one of the only times I've ever been truly like scared you know as, as a of like if, if there's ever a time I'd say I experienced spiritual abuse it would be something like this where um you know, the the pastor who was speaking, there's probably about 100 kids in the audience, and he said he's never not had a kid speak in tongues by the time he was done. So he prayed over all of us and then told all of us, whoever could speak in tongues could get up and leave. And he did that probably around three times until there was maybe 15 of us left. And then he took us into his office, and he just kept laying hands on us and praying for us and then telling us, speak in tongues. And then, you know, he wasn't going to let us go until we said something. And it's the only time I've actively, knowingly lied of like pretending to do something like that. I've never pretended to be slain in the spirit. I've never pretended to have any visions because I always thought if those things happen, they'll just happen to me. Um, But that's the only time I've ever sat there and just blabbered because I was legitimately scared of what would happen to me. Because this guy made a very big deal about how he's never had a kid not speak in tongues under his watch. And I did not want to see what would happen if I was suddenly the one who was going to break his record. Yeah. 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 And again, uh, we, we can't devote as much time as probably topics like that deserve on this podcast. We're not even trying to make a theological statement on sure. tongues. But yeah. just the, like you said, the spiritual abuse that, that was going on in these circles and the, the confusion it could have brought on a, a young believer. But... Like you said, um, it was, you know, as a six-year-old, you gave a six-year-old's heart to Christ. But I know later in life, just through our friendship, you've told me that in college you really had a a deepening of faith. And so could you talk about that a little bit? Yes. Uh, So college is where really actions had to match desire. You know, my desire was to serve the Lord. My desire was to be obedient and do these things. But my actions were not matching that. Um, the, the biggest example was I had not been baptized. Um, my, because I had not had a consistent church, you know, just between divorce and things like that, I had not had a consistent church I had gone to. And then on top of that, um, my mom and dad were really big on not pressuring me to get baptized at a certain age because they wanted me to make sure that when I got baptized, I was really doing it because I understood it which I I think those are great. And that's what I I wish more parents would have is understanding that getting your seven-year-old in the tank doesn't mean anything if they don't know what they're doing. So I don't fault my mom and dad for having that position at all. But all that passed. And it was really when I was, I was either 19 or 20. And I was applying to do summer missions through the North American Mission Board. And they wouldn't allow me to do it if I wasn't baptized. And I remember sitting there having this moment where it was like, it was my first time stepping out 
wanting to do some kind of ministry for the Lord and seeing how my fear and lack of obedience was going to hinder me from that. And I had to make a choice like, was I going to just no longer pursue any kind of ministry and service to God and let this fear rule me? Or was I going to step out on faith and do this first act of obedience God gave me? And, you know, obviously I went forward and got baptized and did that. And, you know, since then, that was really the moment where as an adult, I had the choice to either, you know, kind of take the exit ramp and do what God wanted or take the exit ramp and do what, you know, I wanted, uh, which was to not draw attention to myself and no one to notice that I hadn't been baptized yet. And you said that was about when you were 19, 20 years old mm-hmm. yep. at the Baptist Union here at Missouri Western? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I was I was really involved at the Baptist Union Union. That was what I really got plugged into. I, I uh, was walking to class one day and found a business card on the ground that said, uh, BSU 701 free dinner. And it's probably the only time someone has found litter and then that litter has directed their life. But free dinner was very enticing to me. And so I, I went to the BSU and I met Paul Damry and um, I got really involved there. I didn't know anyone at Missouri Western. I remember spending a lot of nights in my dorm room just crying because I was alone and I, I didn't like it there. And so the BSU was really what took me out of the water and, and gave me a life raft. And that's where I, I met everyone and got all my connections and made all my friends and stuff. So I, I owe much of my Christian walk to the Baptist Student Union and to the faithful discipleship of Paul Damry. So, all right, we've had at six, um, you accepted the Lord. You gave a six-year-old's heart to Christ. You waded through the waters of confusion of uh, Baptist theology and a hyper charismatic theology and came out as a, a 19 20 year old in college found a, a free food advertisement oh yeah which ultimately was God's providence to plug you into the Baptist Student Union and from there you started serving summer missions obviously we haven't even gotten to you being a pastor yet mm-hmm. you surrendering to a call to ministry and so how about you take us from uh, getting reconnected to the Lord, having that deepening of, of baptism and going on summer mission to your call to pastor. What happened yep. in between that time? So 2005, I graduate high school, 18 years old. I get a scholarship to go sing at Missouri Western. And so from 2005, 2006, I don't really know anything about the BSU. 2006, I find that card on the ground. And then 2007, uh, 8, and 9, I'm just Mr. BSU, like, like I'm the only guy who can play guitar there. And so that means that I become the worship leader. I'm getting a music degree. So that also means like I can sing. So I'm, I'm learning how to play guitar and lead worship. You know, I move into the BSU house. I become Paul's first like intern. I'm on lead team. And so for about three years, I have this exponential growth in the BSU where I become a very, very big fish in a very little pond. And what I didn't realize at the time is that, and, and also like like you said, doing summer missions, like I was a missionary also. So like every feather in my pharisaical cap, I had it like from the tribe of Benjamin, circumcised in the eighth day, Pharisee of Pharisees, you know? So um, when, by the time I graduated from the BSU, I didn't realize that I was the most arrogant guy. I mean, I was so arrogant. It was ridiculous how arrogant I was. And one thing that did not help was that 
I got offered a job uh, full-time right out of college to be the music and youth pastor of one of the churches in St. Joe. And, and like all that did was just fuel my belief that I was God's gift to ministry and how lucky Jesus was to have me on his team. Like, what would he do without me, you know? And so I get this job in 2009. And I mean, first of all, I didn't understand the red flags to look for. The fact that they were willing to hire me was a red flag because I was not qualified for the job. Um, but what I found out was the pastor who uh, was the pastor at the time, he also was very brand new to ministry and he was making a lot of bad decisions as well. So him bringing me in was not something the church wanted. He had gotten rid of the music minister who had been there for 20 years without telling anyone Then he brought me in a week later. So within like two weeks, I had this choir and it went from like 36 people down to four people. And I didn't know why I was dumb. I didn't know that it was because they all hated me. And you know, during one time of invitation, uh, this lady came up to me and her exact words to me was, I want you to pray for me because Jesus told me to tell you that um, he hates you. <laughs> and, <laughs> I'm so sorry. No, no, no. I mean, it is funny. It's funny. And, and I, I just sat there and I just, as the 22 year old, was just like, okay. And so, you know, I don't even know what I prayed for her about, but I prayed for her. And so we, it's like um, September of 2009. Cynthia and I are getting married in November. So in this church, I have my church, I have my job, and I'm living in a parsonage from the church as well. Well, at the end of September, the pastor brings me in. I've only been there for two and a half months. And he says, listen, I'm not going to fire you, but no one here wants you. And so you need to find another job. And... That was obviously hard to take in. Once again, looking back, I understand it's because I was unqualified, unexperienced, didn't know what I was doing, and super arrogant. Like it was the everything someone was looking for, right? Uh, but so I I asked for like a month severance pay, and so Cynthia and I, as we get married, we lose our church, our house, and our job all in one setting. The only job I can find is working at McDonald's, making seven twenty-five an hour. So I mean, Cynthia and I enter our marriage, and we've lost everything that as we start out. Our marriage and at that point I'm very mad at God um, I didn't do anything wrong I was the chosen one I was God's gift to ministry I was mr. BSU and I was the bright and shiny star of the st. Joe and how dare he let me go through something like that and so for about three or four months I didn't go to church at all um, part of it was because I lived at the Baptist Student Union I knew a lot of the pastors and I didn't want to show up at any of their churches because I was going to be really embarrassed when they saw me because they all knew I'd got a job and I was really embarrassed about the fact that I'd lost it already. And so I didn't go to church, but then it was maybe January, February of 2010 and I decided to go to Frederick. Micah Freeze was preaching through Nehemiah. I don't even remember what he was preaching about, but at the end of the sermon, he had an invitation and it, if Maybe this is part of my charismatic experience speaking right now, but I don't even remember getting up. I just remember at one point I'm halfway down the aisle and I walk forward and I grab Micah Freeze's hands and I just burst into tears and I just said, I'm so mad at God and I need to repent. And so I just burst into tears crying and I repented. And then two weeks later, Clyde Elder, the director of missions, calls me and says, there's this little church in the South End called Carnegie Baptist that needs a part-time music guy. Would you be interested? 
And now <clears throat> I realize had I not gone through that meat grinder, I would have never been humble enough to go to a church of 60 people and make $100 a week playing guitar. That would have been far too beneath me. The South End, ew, you know, I wouldn't have gone there. And $100, psh, I'm worth at least 10 times that. I'm basically Chris Tomlin, you know. And so it's one of those things where I look back and I always tell people, you will be humble before God. Either he will humble you or you will humble yourself. I did not humble myself. God humbled me, and I'm very grateful he did. It was incredibly painful, but because God put me through that ringer, he completely ground me down and then brought me to a place where I could then be rebuilt. And so that's how I got to Carnegie. A few months later, Jacob gets hired, and then from there, that's where I started to learn what real ministry was, what real commitment was, what the church actually was, was through ministering with Jacob and seeing... Um, not being part of the biggest church or part of the flashiest church, but just being part of a church that that loves the people and serves and preaches the word. And so from there, I was the youth pastor. I took some kids to a D now, which is a disciple now. And um, I led some kids to the Lord. And it was kind of that moment where the song um, Stand by Hillsong was playing. And that was where I got kind of called to ministry. That was my moment where I'd say, I'd look back and say I was called to ministry. I realized nothing in life would be as fulfilling as leading those kids to the Lord. And so I understand that's a long way to answer your first question, but essentially that's my testimony slash call to ministry right there. Calvin, I think that you are giving our listeners a lot of very pertinent information to your story. Um, and the reason we do this is so that our listeners can can see that they're not the only ones out there who have gone through, like you said, spiritual confusion, spiritual abuse, times of arrogance, times of humbling. And, and what's maybe unique about yours is then a, a call to ministry. And so could you tell us more about what it means to be called to ministry? Yeah, when I first got called to ministry... Um... What I kept telling people is that I felt called to obedience. And I know that sounds kind of like a weird phrase, but I never saw myself as like the senior pastor of a church, like the main preaching pastor. And in my mind, when someone says I'm called to be a pastor, like that's the only thing I knew what it was. Um, and up until just relatively recent in my development, um, has, has preaching even been something that has been in my arsenal of things that I could, I could do. Um, once I felt this calling from God, I didn't know how to describe it other than just whatever God wants me to do, I want to be obedient to it. And so whether that means singing, teaching, preaching, stuff like that. And, and really, I, I feel like as I've grown in the church, God has kind of given me a job that is a very unique job because it's an amalgamation of like six different things like like I teach on Wednesday nights I teach Sunday school I do all the finances of the church I do the administration of the church I schedule the big events and you know do things like that I I co-lead worship with Jeff like like I have it's kind of like that jack of all traits master of none like if I were to set out with like a binary view of being a pastor as being someone who preaches 52 times a week I don't think I would have ended up where I am, but 
I never felt that like initial pull of like, I need to preach 52 times a week. I just more felt this pull of whatever God wants me to do, I'll be obedient. So I, I think you've opened up an interesting door for us. Um, you use the phrase, I just want to be obedient to whatever God calls me to do. And I think that's a really good way to view calling. However, where I'll uh, maybe push you a little bit is every Christian should be obedient to whatever God calls them to do. Sure. And God calls us to a long list of things to do before going into vocational ministry. Yeah. Um, right. We have to. We are called to sanctification. We are called to holy living. We are called to share the gospel. Called to love our neighbor. Um, and the list goes on. And so, how can you help our listeners? both understand the difference is there a difference and maybe even if a listener is going through something similar how to discern the difference between just the general call of a a christian and every christian versus the unique call of a a minister or a a shepherd yeah yeah good good uh observation because you know when you say called to obedience i mean the first thought is well all of us are called to obedience obviously um i think the difference is you know god kept calling me to things and i kept saying yes to him and every time that happened then uh, it would be a a deeper level or a new level of something god would call me to and every time i said yes to it it ultimately got me more involved like it got me teaching sunday school got me going to seminary got me leading worship got me preaching and every time I said yes to this it just kept refining and pointing in a direction where God never stopped pulling me in that direction um, but the, the advice I would give to someone though is the advice my dad gave me um, is if you could be happy doing anything else then you should do that like if you can really say you know I would like to be in ministry but I'd also be just as happy you know, doing metal fabrication or as an electrical engineer or something, then you should do that. The only reason you should do ministry is because you wouldn't be content doing anything else. And so as God kept calling me to do things, and as I kept saying yes, that was also then paired with the affirmation of the local church saying, we see this calling in you as well. And then the internal uh, confirmation of there's nothing else I could do that would be as satisfying as this. So Um, While my call, boom, was like an overnight thing, how that manifested or what that looked like was different. I could have just as easily been a bivocational guy somewhere. And, you know, if that's what God had called me to, I would have been okay with that. That's that's really all I thought God's plan for me was, was to be a bivocational worship guy. But just as I kept being faithful and kept doing things, God kept moving me into greater responsibilities, if that makes sense. So for anyone, I would say, one, um, could you be happy doing anything else? If so, vocational ministry is probably not for you. And two, uh, just keep serving the Lord as he gives you opportunities. And as God leads you to greater realms of responsibility and people affirm that as well, then that is probably significant. You know, that probably means something. I I think that's very helpful and I especially like that second one of of keep keep taking the open doors god gives you and as they are opened and as people also affirm you in them that's probably a good sign and walk me through the spiritual significance your growth your walk of 10 years from call the ministry to where we are today 
Yeah, I wish I could say that um, like a phoenix rising from the ashes, once I got hired at Carnegie, I was exactly who God wanted me to be, but I was definitely not, um, and Jacob had a lot of work cut out for him. I really, once again, had not ever been a part of a local church in any meaningful capacity. Yes, I've been to church. Yes, I even went to church semi-consistently, but I was you know, very much like we came in after the first song, we left before the last song type thing. So I viewed working at Carnegie like I viewed any job where, um, you know, I got paid to be there from 10.15 to 11.15. And so that meant I was going to show up at 10.14 and I was going to be the first one gone at 11.16 because that's what I got paid for, you know. And so I remember Jacob and I even one time got on a got in a fight uh he was in seminary and he got in a fight because he was telling me ironically to take the youth group kids to d now which was a saturday the d now i got called to ministry at and i was like i don't get paid to do that i'm not gonna do that and um you know because once again that was my view of what i did it was i get hired to sing and play guitar i, I didn't have an understanding of serving the church or what it meant to be a church member and so that was something i really God grew me through for all those years was that being in the church is so much more than just the one hour that I'm hired to do this. It's it's really being a part of the body. And so once once I got called to ministry, that's where Jacob really pushed me hard of kind of making commitments like like if you really want to be in ministry, then you need to take seminary. If you really want to be in ministry, then you need to, you know, take these next steps. And so, man, from years like like 25 to 29, I mean, it was just the grind of working full time at a secular job, working part time at the church and then taking seminary and having young kids and all that. And, you know, I, I can't thank my wife enough for, you know, all the time she spent watching our children and getting them ready for church on her own and doing all these things while I've been, you know, working full time and part time at the church and doing seminary. And so really from my call to ministry to now, has just been kind of a blur uh, up until maybe I graduated with my MDiv last year. And, and now I really feel like I am at the point to where I should have been when I first got hired at Carnegie. What does it mean to be a pastor when you're working among and serving God's people? Yeah, I mean, <clears throat> being among God's people is ultimately the whole point of the church. You know, I heard a quote one time where someone said, the church would be really easy if it is if it didn't have people, you know, but, you know, at the end of the day, finances and maintenance and building administration and insurance, all that is ultimately secondary to God's people. Like if this building didn't exist tomorrow, if, you know, everything got burned down and all we had was each other, that's still the church. The church is made up of the people. And so the greatest amazement that I have as someone who grew up not being involved in church in an intimate way to now someone who is involved in church is just watching my children know who all these people are, watching my wife, you know, have all these friends, watching me know who all these people are. Like there, there's this kind of family aspect of the church, which once again is not unique 
to being a pastor. It's just part of being in the church. But as a pastor, I am involved in the church, you know, by definition of my job. So I have kind of uh, a leg up on uh, our head start on getting to know people, I suppose. And like one time I asked Cynthia, you know, if I were to die, would you move back to Lee Summit or to Johnson County, you know, to be near any family? And she said, no, if you were to die, I would stay here in St. Joe because this is where my church is, you know? And I thought that was an amazing testimony that for Cynthia, her network, the thing that she would lean toward or look toward in a time of crisis and a time of distress, um, not that she doesn't want to be around her family, but it's ultimately the people in the church. And so being able to teach on a Wednesday night or preach on a Sunday or lead worship or have a Sunday school, things like that, those are all ultimately means to just help grow, admonish, and encourage that body that God has given us. Um, when, when I read about Solomon, when God, when God gave Solomon wisdom, I, I think his exact prayer was, God, give me wisdom to lead such a great people, to lead your people. And, and that's ultimately you know, my prayer. What I have is just, God, give me wisdom to, to lead and be a part of your people, this great people that you have given us. So, you know, ultimately, uh, it's just a joy and an excitement to be able to be a part of these people and to be around them. It is not a job. These are not prospects. These are not, um, you know, customers. These are family. Absolutely. And I think that is a great testimony, both from Cynthia and from yourself, of it's it's not a job. These aren't mm-hmm. customers. This is family. Yeah. Uh, what's one thing you would want the people of Journey to know about Calvin as a church member and as a pastor? Um, probably something that a lot of people would be surprised to know about uh, is that a lot of a lot of what I struggle with, a lot of who I am comes from deep insecurity and it's that insecurity that ultimately drives me to to overcome that and and be the person who i am so like if you know me and you've talked to me you know that this is not me tooting my own horn but you know that i'm very well versed in mormonism islam catholicism you know apologetics worldview things like that Um, but all that comes from a deep insecurity of ultimately saying how arrogant would it be to assume that the very first thing I've ever been taught is the right thing, you know, like really think about that. Think about what are the odds that the very first thing that someone presented to you happened to be absolutely 100% right. And so I've spent a good majority of my life like really putting every other religion through the ringer to see if it's true, putting Christianity through the ringer to see if it's true, learning like the study of how we got the scriptures, seeing atheist arguments against God, seeing liberal arguments against the infallibility of scripture, because if I am incorrect on this, I want to know that. And so people may see me and see like a very strong convictional man who is able to talk circles around other religions and able to stand firm in these things. But people need to understand that that only comes out of deep weakness of wanting to like make sure that I'm not a fool or something like that. And so I just, I want to share that as an encouragement, like probably one of the greatest ministries that I've had specifically in this church is taking deeply insecure people and walking with them 
And the reason I'm able to do that is because God has helped me as a deeply insecure person. And one of the verses I always go back to is John 6, I think it's 68, where Jesus has just told everyone, eat my flesh, drink my blood, and everyone is left. And Jesus looks at the disciples and says, are you going to leave too? And Peter says, where else would we go? You're the only ones with the words of life. You know, um, as I stand and I look through every aspect of Christianity and look through every aspect of every other religion and I just evaluate it all, ultimately I am left holding on to Jesus saying, where else will I go? You are the only one who has eternal life. I have looked everywhere. I have looked at everything. I have evaluated critically everything I can find. And time and time and time again, Jesus and the Bible and Christianity stands firm as like unchangeable, unshakable. And so anyone who is deeply insecure and happens to mistakenly see me and think that I'm a strong bastion or a strong convictional person, understand that it is only through that crucible of that insecurity and that fear and that doubt that God has forged me to have these convictions. And so I, I just want to encourage you that if, if as a weak, doubting, insecure person, God can use you to, to be strong and to be courageous and to be bold. Uh, it's going to be painful. It's going to be hard. It's going to be a long journey. But ultimately, through your journey, you will come out the other end much stronger than, than most people who haven't wrestled and had those dark nights of the souls and things like that. Yeah, and I, I mean, I can just say as personal testimony, I mean, that's something you've really helped me through. And, that, and that's something that I still share with you today. I mean, this podcast isn't about me, but just a short, <laughs> yeah. short story for me. Yeah. I had Jehovah's Witnesses come to my door just a couple weeks ago. And as I was conversing with them, I told them very honestly, you know, I, if your religion is true, I want to follow it. Mm -hmm. And I, I was saying that because I, I want them to feel the same way about mine. If, if my religion is true, I want them to follow it. And obviously, I, I don't believe Jehovah's Witnesses are correct in their theology. I, I believe that uh, the Bible teaches that Jesus is the Son of God, but I, I meant that with all my heart, and I think that's something you and I share, and something you have helped uh, teach me in, to take my insecurities to Christ. Um, that, kind of like you said, the Bible has stood the test of time, that he has the words of eternal life. And as you scrutinize all these religions, it can come out the other side. Uh, Jesus can mm -hmm. withstand that scrutiny. All right, to end our podcast today, to end our episode with you, Calvin, I just want to ask what I ask all of our interviewees, what is one thing you'd like our listeners to know? The one encouragement I would give is the thing that I've seen repeatedly be a stumbling block for many people uh, in the church. You know, either people outside the church or people who have started their Christian walk but have not moved forward. Um, I have heard so many times people say, I need to clean up my life before I can come to Jesus. And it is, it is, it sounds so good. That sounds so right to say that. But ultimately, it is Satan's final biggest lie to try and keep you from ever being able to come to Christ. And so the first challenge I would give for the unbeliever uh, is to disregard that statement that we don't clean up our life to come to Christ. We come to Christ so he then cleans up our life. And then the second hurdle that I see so many people walk through, or not walk through, is the, the fear of, 
I don't know what to do or where to serve, so I'm just not going to do anything. Um, they're scared of getting either overcommitted or trying something and failing. And the encouragement I would then give to people is kind of that whole the journey of a thousand miles begins with a single step. If you're sitting in the pews, if you're not doing anything, just pick one thing. Pick one thing and try it. And just kind of like I said, that call to obedience, just see what door God has opened, be obedient to that, and then do it. And then as you're going down this journey, if God calls you to then something else, either an addition or a change, then pursue that as well. But there are many people who don't make that first step because they think they need to clean up their life. And then there are many people who once Jesus cleans up their life, they never make that next step because they don't know what to do. And so I always want to just encourage people to always just step out on faith, whether that's the initial moment of salvation or the initial moment of getting involved in the church. Those are the two biggest obstacles I always see. And so that'd be the one thing I would leave people with is just that moment of step out on faith and try something. Thank you for leaving us with that note, Calvin, that we don't need to clean up our lives before we come to Christ because he is the one who cleans up our lives. That the gospel is exactly the fact that we we can't clean up our lives on our own, but that Jesus died on the cross and shed his blood to wash all our sins away so that in him we are clean. And for the encouragement for our, our listeners of our church and other churches that um, if you're not serving, if you don't know where to serve, just just take that first step. Um, and if you need to ask the person around you, or if you need to ask your pastor, I bet they have places for you to serve. So Calvin, thank you. I know there's a lot that our listeners can take away from your testimony and from your wisdom. And so thank you for being here. And thank you for listening to another episode of Journey With Us, a podcast of Journey Baptist Church.